Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, this morning we come to a passage of Scripture that has been a difficult one for many Christians to understand through the years. I'm speaking of Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, and it is the story of the baptism of Jesus. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke record the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Now, I say that this has been a difficult passage for some Christians to comprehend, not because those Christians lack faith in the truthfulness of the Scriptures, but just the opposite, because they do believe the Bible's true. What I mean by that is we know that the Bible teaches that Jesus was the only sinless person that ever lived. Further, we know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And we know that repentance is the turning away from and the renouncing of sin. And so you're beginning to see the difficulty. Why would Jesus, the sinless one, come to John for baptism if he had no sin from which to turn? Well, if all we had was the Gospel of Luke, we would be left to our own opinions. But remember that I said when we started this series that God gave us the four Gospels And each one gives us a little different perspective on the same truth. And so with your permission this morning, I'm going to read both accounts of the baptism of Jesus we find in the New Testament, first in Luke 3 and then in Matthew 3. Let's read. Luke 3, 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then Matthew 3.13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And so we see particularly in Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist had the same objection to Jesus being baptized as maybe you do in your mind. Jesus was sinless. So the question before us this morning is why? Why was Jesus baptized? And I want to try to answer that question from three perspectives. Number one, the obedience of the Son. Secondly, the pleasure of the Father. And finally, the fulfillment of righteousness. First of all, the obedience of the Son. Now we know that the baptism of Jesus was similar to everything that Jesus did in that it was motivated from obedience to the Father's will. If you read the Gospel of John, and if you remember our study of John from a few years ago, you know that the Gospel of John is full of Jesus testifying to the fact that he always and ever did the will of the Father. Let me give you a few of those verses. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever he does, the Son does likewise. John 6, 38, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7, 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8, 28, Jesus said, 
when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own authority, but speak thus as the Father has taught me. And so we see from the very beginning, Jesus always did the will of the Father. Now that is seen, of course, at His incarnation. We keep coming back to Philippians chapter 2, don't we? Where Paul explained that Jesus left the glories of heaven and in some way emptied himself of the glories of heaven and condescended, he humbled himself to take on human flesh. We call that theologically the incarnation, God becoming man. And so that was the will of God the Father. And so Jesus did that voluntarily. In fact, everything Jesus did and everything that Jesus said was a reflection of his obedience to the Father. For example, John 14, 31, Jesus says that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. But it was not just his action, it was his words. Do you remember that the scripture says that when Jesus was teaching, the crowds were coming out to them and they always left amazed because he taught them as one having what? authority. He was not giving a second and a third rehashing of something he heard someone say. He was giving direct revelation. God in the flesh declaring the will of God and the revelation of God. And so this is what he says. He says, I always speak what God gives me to say. My point is this. Ultimately and overarchingly, the answer to the question is why was Jesus baptized? It's because it was the will of His Father. And that is proven, I believe, by the pleasure of the Father in the Son. That's our second point, the pleasure of the Father. Look at verse 22 back in Luke 3. Scripture says, after He was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him, that is Jesus, in bodily form as a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now we have two incidences recorded in the New Testament of God the Father speaking audibly. Once here at the baptism of Jesus and the other at what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus took His inner circle of disciples up on a mountain and there He showed to them a little glimpse of His heavenly glory. God the Father said again then, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so in both instances when God the Father speaks He tells us two things about His relationship with the Son. Number one, He says, I love the Son. When you call someone your beloved, as you'll probably do in a couple of days on Valentine's Day, you're telling them, I love you. You are the one that I love. That's the word beloved means. God says, this is the one that I love. Look at him. And the second thing God says about his relationship to the Son is that he takes pleasure in the Son. Behold my beloved Son, the one I love, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight, in whom I take pleasure. Let me just say the most obvious truth in the world is that God the Father is pleased with God the Son. And what He is pleased with is His obedience. All parents are pleased when their children are obedient. I know I am with my four children. John the Apostle, when he was speaking of those he had won to faith in Jesus, Christians, in John 1, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, he calls them children. Many, many times in those three books, John refers to Christians as his children. And this is what he says in 3 John, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
That is to hear that they're being obedient to the word of God. Now hear this, God the Father is always perfectly pleased with God the Son because the Son is always perfectly obedient. God the Father is always perfectly pleased with God the Son because God the Son is always perfectly obedient. Now, I told you I have four children and I will tell you, I am pleased with them. They bring me pleasure and joy, but my pleasure in my children is based on mercy and grace. They are not perfect and perfectly obedient. They're good children as children go, but they're not perfect. And so when I say I take pleasure in them, it's a pleasure based on grace, not so with the father's relationship with the son. God the Father sees the Son and He sees one that is perfectly obedient, therefore He's perfectly pleased. John Piper says this, God the Father is well pleased with His Son. His soul delights in Jesus. When He looks at His Son, He enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes what He sees." End quote. Now the reason that God the Father takes pleasure in His Son is maybe a little different than you think or that I thought. It's because, hear this, he sees himself when he sees the Son. Colossians 1 says this, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. That word means the exact representation. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and through him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Now hear this, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all of His fullness to dwell in Him. What pleases the Father most of all is that when He sees the Son, He sees an exact representation of Himself. In other words, God has chosen in His sovereignty to reveal what He's like to humanity. We call that revelation, right? And theologians talk about really two means of revelation. First of all is what we call general revelation. That is, to all humanity God has revealed some things about Himself. Romans tells us that we can know that God is powerful and creative through what has been made. That is through God's creation, the stars, the planets, the seas, children, animals. We know that God is powerful and creative, right? Now that's not enough to save us, but that's enough to tell us that God exists. And the other way that God has revealed Himself is what we call special revelation. And that is through His Holy Scripture and through His Son. Now the Holy Scripture is called the Word of God. And the scriptures reveal Jesus to be God's word, right? And so we find in what we know about Jesus, we find in the Bible. That's called special revelation. And what we find in special, special revelation is what God says about Jesus in Colossians 2.9. For all him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now think about that truth for a second. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So, if you want to know what God is like, who should you look to? Jesus. All the fullness of deity dwells in a human body in the person of Jesus. 
And so when God the Father then looks at God the Son, he is pleased because God the Father is pleased with himself. Now that sounds wrong-headed, doesn't it? I saw some of you jolt when I said that. Because we all grew up being taught, rightly so, that when a human being is pleased with himself, that's a bad thing. They're arrogant, right? They're conceited, they're prideful, all things that we tell our children not to be. But when God is pleased with himself, it's not manifestation of pride or arrogance or conceit, it's simply the truth. Because the reason we tell our children not to be full of themselves is because there's always someone who can do what they do better, that they should look up to and admire, right? Who should God look up and admire? Who can do what God does better than God? No one. So then it is right and appropriate that God the Father is pleased with his own attributes. And so it's no accident that when he sees God the Son, in whom all of his attributes exist in a human form, is pleased. That's what it means when God the Father says from heaven, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now it is important to note at this point, that Jesus never once denied his own deity. You know, sometimes when people are showering us with compliments, we shuffle our feet and get kind of embarrassed. Jesus never did. Now, there were times when it was not Jesus' moment to reveal who he was, and people would say, this is the Son of God, and he would leave quickly, or, or he would say nothing. But he never denied that he was God. And when the moment was right, he began to confirm that at every opportunity that, that he indeed was who people thought he was. And so even John the Baptist, when he said Jesus comes out to him to be baptized, he says, look, I, I'm not worthy to unlatch your sandals. You ought to be baptizing me. Jesus doesn't say, oh, John, you're too hard on yourself. <laughs> he agrees with him. But he says, permit it at this time. Permit it at this time so that we may fulfill, fulfill all righteousness. He says, allow it now. That is, at this moment in history, it is the will of my Father that you baptize me. And that leads to our third and final point, the fulfillment of all, of all righteousness. Now, Jesus is about to initiate his public earthly ministry. Remember, we're in the third chapter of Luke, and uh, we've seen the announcement of Jesus' coming birth in chapter 1. We've seen his birth in chapter 2. We, we see in chapter 2, when he's eight days old, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple for his circumcision and the ceremonial cleansing where he's met by Simeon and Anna. So we see Jesus fulfilling righteousness even as an eight-day-old baby. But we, we don't see anything more about Jesus in the Gospels until he's 12 years old. We again find him in the temple. This time he's listening to the teachers and asking them important questions. And remember where we left it when his mother and dad finally found him after three days being missing, he goes back with them to Nazareth and he hupotazo, voluntarily submitted himself to their authority. And we don't hear any more about him until this moment when he's about 30 years old, when it is time to begin his public ministry. And his baptism is a signal, a sign that John the Baptist's ministry is coming to an end because John was just the forerunner and now the Messiah is on the scene and he's about to begin his ministry. And what he's also announcing through his baptism is his intention of doing everything God had sent him to do. 
And it begins with his baptism. Now, when he is baptized, we see that it was indeed of the Father, as the Father declares his pleasure in the Son and in his baptism. This is further affirmed, note this, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Matthew said, God the Father spoke audibly, and God the Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove and lighted upon Jesus. And here we have all three members of the Trinity in perfect agreement that this is the will of the Father. Now, there are those in history and those today in Dallas-Fort Worth who teach that there is no Trinity. We call that modalism, and it is an ancient heresy, and it's still around today. The idea is that there's one God, and He can only be one at any moment. He can either be the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, but not all three at once. It's sort of like water. It can be liquid, gas, or, or, or solid, but only one at a time. That's called modalism, and it's a heresy. What the Bible teaches is a concept called Trinitarian theology, that there is one God, but He exists in three persons simultaneously. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we have that proven, I think most clearly in all the Bible, here in Matthew chapter 3. You have God the Father in heaven audibly saying, Behold my beloved Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit confirming and affirming that with His presence as a dove. And so there, there you have it, the perfect agreement of the Holy Trinity. Now, we know that the ultimate purpose of Christ taking on human flesh was not to be baptized. The ultimate purpose of Christ taking on human flesh was so that he could fulfill all righteousness. That is, to live a perfect, sinless life so that he could be the perfect, once for all sacrifice for sinners. Dying in our place, the death that we deserved. And so I would say then the ultimate act of Christ's obedience was the cross, the cross. Because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. All of us have sinned and therefore fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us are culpable for that sin and deserve death. Philippians 2.8 says this, being found in appearance as a man, that is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, it would be one thing if Jesus came and lived 95 years and died in his sleep, right? But Paul points out that not only did he take on human flesh, which, by the way, was very humbling, right? To go from being co-equal with God the Father, sitting at his right hand for all eternity in the glories of heaven to leaving the glory of heaven and taking on a human body, we call that condescension, right? And humility. In fact, Paul points that as the ultimate expression of humility. But then he says this, to the point of death Jesus was obedient, and not just any death, but the death of the cross. And I think the reason Paul makes that point is that death on a cross was incredibly shameful. The cross is where the worst of the worst were put to death. The Romans were incredibly cruel, but they reserved the cross for those they really wanted to make an example of. So Jesus condescended taking on human flesh to the point of death he was obedient, even the shameful death of the cross. And so the question is, if God the Father was always perfectly 
pleased with the obedience of God the Son, does that mean that he was pleased with Jesus' death? Yes. We know that because 800 years earlier the prophet Isaiah predicted he would be. Isaiah 53.10 says this, this may shock you. But the Lord, that is God, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This is the suffering servant passage. He is speaking prophetically of the Savior. God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render him as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, when we say, was God the Father pleased with the death of God the Son, we mean yes and no. He was pleased in the sense that he was pleased because this was his ultimate will and the Son was obedient even to death. He did not have any sadistic joy in seeing his son suffer and die. The, the father does not take pleasure in seeing the suffering of anyone, especially his son. Rather, he was pleased, hear this, by what his death on the cross would accomplish. And that is the salvation of many sinners. Now you contrast the pleasure of God in the sacrifice of his son. And by the way, we call that propitiation, right? That's a fancy theological term. It's, it speaks of the atonement, that it satisfied God's justice. That is, Jesus did everything that was necessary for our sin to be forgiven, for us to be justified. God is just. He must punish sin. Can you agree with that? And so he punished Jesus in our place. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Now contrast that with how the book of Isaiah opens in the first chapter. Isaiah, remember, is speaking prophetically to God's people, who, by the way, are very religious. They're going and they're sacrificing animals and they're saying their prayers, but it's all a facade. Their heart is far from the Lord. And remember, the scripture says that to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. And here's what the prophet says. Isaiah 1:11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. But then he says in Isaiah 53:11, speaking of Jesus, his lamb that he sent, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. That is, God does play, take pleasure and is satisfied in the sacrifice of his son because it is sinless and it is perfect and it is eternal. What he's speaking here, dear ones, is of the concept of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. You have to understand that there's not a person ever born other than Jesus that had inherent righteousness. That's why the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The eyes of the Lord could roam the earth day and night for 10,000 years. He would never find a person who was sinlessly righteous. All of us are in the same category. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And so therefore, we were altogether unfit and unworthy of being the sacrifice. And so what did God do? He broke into human history and he sent his son to be that sacrifice. But for Jesus to be that sacrifice, he had to be sinless. Remember in the Old Testament, 
You couldn't just sacrifice any old lamb, right? It had to be one that was spotless and perfect and without defect. That, of course, was symbolic and a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God, Jesus, who would come, who would be sinless. And so Jesus did, in fact, live that perfect life, right? Tempted in every way we are, he went to the cross. And what happened at the cross? We say Jesus suffered and he died. Of course he did. But what also happened at the cross, the scripture says, is that God the Father treated him as if he had committed all of our sins. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. And so here's the beginnings of the concept of imputed righteousness. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, don't forget who wrote that. That was the Apostle Paul. And if anyone had a claim to inherent righteousness on earth, I guess it would be Paul. Remember, he was born into the right family. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But yet when he came face to face with true holiness in the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he shut up very quickly about talking about Paul's righteousness, right? In fact, later he said his righteousness was as filthy rags and worse. He finally saw himself as he really was. And so it just emptied him of conceit and pride and filled him with humility and gratitude. And when he thinks of Jesus, he thinks of righteousness. And so here's what happens. On the cross, Jesus paid sin's penalty. And for all who will put their faith and trust in him, his righteousness is placed in their account. Now you think about this from an accounting standpoint. You have a, a balance sheet. On one side you have debits and you have credits. And in the side that said debit, we had plenty, right? Debits are sins, liabilities. In the, signs, the side that says credits, that is righteousness, what do we have? We had a big zero, nothing. That's a bad situation to be in, all debits and no credits. Now on the other side of the equation, here's Jesus on the cross who had never sinned. So he had his ledger full of credit. God the Father is pleased with him because he's perfectly obedient. And on debit's side, how many sins did he have against him? Not one. And so here's what happens. God the Father, if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, takes the righteousness of Christ and he moves it over to your account. And he takes your debits, your sins, and he places them on Jesus at the cross. Is that a good deal? That's what we call the gospel. That's called good news. That's what Jesus did for you. And he says that is appropriated by faith, not through works. That's what Paul meant in Ephesians when he says salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. You could work until the cows come home and you'll never, ever take away those sins from that side of the equation. And even what you would consider credits, God would not. And so the only hope you have is to humbly come to him and say, Lord, I'm a bankrupt sinner. This is when Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually impoverished, hopeless, they will never get out of debt. And so all they can do is throw themselves upon the mercy of the judge and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. 
Guess what? The Bible says if you'll do that, he'll hear you. He will have mercy upon you. He will forgive you and he will save you. Not only will he forgive your sins, all that would do is just bring you back to neutral, right? He takes the credit of Jesus and applies it to your account and now you've become incredibly wealthy spiritually. You go from being bankrupt and in debt to God to being co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Receiving all of the attributes and, and the glory that come with being his child. And Jesus says he not only calls you brothers and sisters, he calls us friends. That's good news. That's the gospel. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may, may be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus did. He was baptized to announce, I'm going to go all the way to the end with this. And then he fulfilled that on the cross. And what was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. He completely did the will of the Father. Now it is the will of the Father that you would repent of your sins and you would humbly come to him with empty hands. Say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. I receive this gift of salvation of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. I turn from my sins, I repent of them, and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. If that is your prayer, if that is your heart today, he'll hear you, he'll save you. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, we are encouraged to see the perfect obedience of Jesus. It began, of course, in eternity past when he determined to leave the glories of heaven and take on human flesh. Lord, it continued in his incarnation when he was born. It continued on on his eighth day of life when he was circumcised. Father, it continued through his childhood into his young adulthood. It was announced publicly through his baptism. It was confirmed through your voice from heaven and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was testified to by a perfect life and then it culminated in perfect obedience on the cross. And yet, Father, we must confess that none here is perfectly obedient. And the only way for you to take pleasure in, in us is through grace. And yet, Lord, you made a way for that to be. And that is you count our sins to Jesus on the cross and you impute his righteousness to our account when we put our faith in him. And Father, for all in this room who've done that and understand that, I rejoice with them today. It makes us, Father, want to be more holy and to grow in sanctification, to be more like Jesus, to work out our salvation. But Lord, there may be one or two or more here today who have never experienced salvation. Maybe they came in here today thinking they were good enough to please you or their family had done enough in the past to, to be credited to, their, to them as righteousness. But Lord, the, the scripture is incredibly clear. The only way anyone can have righteousness credited to them is by faith. It was true of Abraham, it was true of Jacob, Isaac, and Paul. It's true of every believer today. The only righteousness we can lay claim to is the righteousness of Jesus. And that only through his atoning sacrifice. So Father, I pray you'd give open spiritual eyes to that lost soul here today. 
that they may call out to you for salvation. And may they seek it through Jesus, through faith and repentance. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.